Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I mean, the thing is that we can't really know anything if you think about it. We can't know ourselves. We can't know down to the very bottom of their motivations, the people around us, the world in which we live. I mean, life is a mystery. And and alas, you know, however smart you are, however hard you work, uh, you'll go to your grave having uh, asked far more questions than you'll ever answer. So classics, the object of classics, antiquity is like everything else in our world. It's just that it's a very interesting, vibrant, and strangely circumscribed example of this problem of not being able to know something completely, systematize it entirely. Why read the ancient classics? What do we learn from them? And is Homer's epic long poem, The Odyssey, still relevant to us today? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cal. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack the beauty, the mystery and allure of the ancient Greek world and ask, is it possible to define or curate the past? British poet, writer and teacher David Constantine unpacks the relationship between grief, memory and trauma. An American classic scholar, Dr Shane Butler, talks deep classics. This is a show about past and present, love and loss, and the liminal spaces in between. But first, The Life Writer with David Constantine. Uh, My name is David Constantine. I was uh, for 30 years or so a teacher of German language and and literature at, at university, and I've carried on those interests. Translation has always been very important for me throughout, and Quite a lot of my writing has had to do with between the languages and between the cultures. Um, I've been very lucky in my literary life. I had, I was one of the very first people that Bloodaxe Books in the northeast of England took on. I've been him, with him now for more than 30 years. And Ra Page of Comma Press, who set up just to do short stories, I was just about one of his two, first two or three authors as well. So those are the two things that I've primarily done, poetry and short stories, and I did write a novel many years ago, a short one, but this, The Life Writer, is the most um, ambitious novel I've, I've, I've written. What I'd like to do now is read actually the first page and a half of, of the novel, which uh, introduces the characters. Uh, Eric, the man who's dying, his wife, uh, Katrine, um, and already, I think, after a page and a half, the, the, the central problem for her of of the novel is becoming apparent. Then Eric said, I don't want to be like that colleague of yours, Dennis Watts, his name. I don't want to be like him, clinging on, nothing else in his head every minute of every day, nothing, only clinging on. I don't call that living when all you think about is staying alive. He halted. They looked at one another. And the man Eric did not want to be like appeared in the cold gap in their conversation, the man whose only thought was not to die, who had no other interest, no other conversation, nobody else's doings, hopes, fears, interested him in the least, nothing in the world outside himself, no past, present or future, nothing. All he thought about and spoke about was how not to die. He trawled the web for cures, and the last he hit upon was carrot juice. He carried a large bottle of it in his briefcase and took a glass on the hour, every hour, in whatever company and wherever he happened to be. Nothing else, no other food or drink, 
just in time, he said, I've found the one thing that will work. To his wife, family, friends, colleagues, strangers, he became a living horror, his black eyes, black as anthracite, burning brilliantly in his sunken face. And that was what he was remembered for, his final year, when he thought and spoke of nothing but staying alive. The potion supposed to cure him died him through and through, and his frightened eyes shone blackly from the holes in his yellow head. No, said Katrine, I don't want you to be like poor Dennis. Of course I don't, but you can't just give up. I haven't, Eric answered, and I promise you I won't. But it was as though some current or the tide had found him and was beginning to exert an attraction no amount of love would be able to withstand. He would turn, sink, and be taken away from her, far, far away, quite beyond her reach. The onset of that remoteness showed in his face sometimes, like the vagueness in the face of a pregnant woman, the look of belonging elsewhere, a look Katrine could not bear. He took her hand across the breakfast table. I can't complain, he said. I've had a good life, only two years short of my three score years and ten. That's not young. Think of the people at school and university with me. Dead already, said several of them, ten, twenty, forty years ago, let alone the poets, painters and musicians you write about, so many of them dying so very young. I can't complain. What a remarkable book, David. Um, Really well done on The Life Writer. It brings up so many different themes related to love, loss and grief and how we understand it all. I might throw you a big wide open question to start off with. Do you think we can ever let go of our first loves or at least let go of the memory of our first loves? Well, I've thought about that more since because when the film was made, 45 years of my short story in another country... It was only then that I I wrote the story itself 20 years ago. And it was only then when the film came out and I, I, I saw it that I realized that I'd, I'd employed exactly this or more or less the same structure in the life, writer, And it was the same structure because, in a sense, the, the same thing was going on. That is to say, into a person's life living in the present, the past erupted in the case of in another country uh, was particularly violent and unbearable because the two people were so old. But in the case of Catherine, the chief well, writer, really, of this book, the, the, the life writer, it's exceedingly painful for her to have to deal with a past, her husband's past, which wrongly, wrongly, she begins to conceive of as, as, as less than the life that he had with her as a kind of a, a passionate life in the past which she and he together have not been able to emulate and I suppose the whole risk for her and at times it's it's very close to being fulfilled the risk for her is that she simply annihilates herself in the wish to feeling of responsibility almost to recover her husband's life because as she goes through the documents of his life the letters and Talk to his talks to his uh, best friend Daniel about the time which they come to call back then a long time before. As she writes, and this is a fact about writing in a way, the better you do it, the less bearable it becomes because the, the more convincingly and um, thoroughly you summon up the past, um, there's a grave risk that that will, as it were, outdo the present in which you're trying to continue 
a life. I mean, I tried to write a novel which, which in the end, you know, showed her struggle, but did leave her with, with life opening up into a life uh, more of her own than that. Which is not a question of forgetting him. I'm not suggesting that. I ought to say, perhaps already, that I, although I understand why people want closure after very terrible events, I don't actually believe that that is a human possibility. I don't think we achieve closure. And honestly speaking, I don't think we should even attempt to. There's a way of dealing with the past, one hopes, that would actually incorporate it in the living now so that the past would continue in the present, ideally speaking, in some kind of beneficent fashion rather than malevolent. Do you think the past can be defined in terms of how we understand it and process it? Do you think that we can ever fully grasp all the different complexities within different moments in our lifetime or our loved one's lifetimes? I don't think we can. Again, that is is, is really a central um, inquiry in the novel. Everything shifts. There are points in the novel when she's simply overwhelmed with the plethora of tiny details, sometimes tiny um, little documents and bus tickets or stuff like that, which is kind of hoarded, kept as the ephemera of that sort. And what these things meant back then and what they mean now, clearly they are the same things, but they, it, the significance of them absolutely doesn't stand still. It doesn't stand still in any period of time. And the thing I came to realize in writing it, I suppose I realized it again, is Effectively speaking, for human beings, there is only a present tense, and things clearly are, chronologically speaking, in the past, and there is an, another tense in which things exist or don't exist, will come into being in the, in the future. But as far as human beings are actually concerned in their living, um, you are there in the present. When you remember things, you, the memory of those things um, takes place in, in the present tense of your being where you are, and it of course, it's got to then sort itself with the person you now are, not the person you you were um, at the period of your life, in the tense, if you like, in which those things first really occurred. But present tense doesn't really allow us as human beings to have ownership of the past and take it for ourselves. It raises so many grey areas, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Again, I think this the perspectives in in this particular novel they're not you know there are two or three significant ones but they they're not infinite but if you split every person into his or her own possible perspectives at any one time then the thing is so shifting i mean that's in a, in a sense a that's just a factor of being alive that nothing stands still so you couldn't possibly claim um ownership of anything and one of the worries that you know, I've written a, a biography myself, and I was aware while I was doing it that um, and an awful lot of, of biography, particularly modern ones, which are kind of 900 pages long, it really is as though they want to, to fix this past life down in a form which will be indisputable. But that's just not possible, and it's not even a thing that you should, I think, desire to do. It's the very fact of, of um, many-sidedness and instability, which is the, a fact, the fact of life. And in a sense, I think it's a fact of life to be celebrated rather than worried about. I mean, worry is the wrong word. I mean, it is upsetting, but it it is just how things are. Do you think it's fair to describe the life writer as a love story, David? Or how would you describe it? Oh, it is a love story. And I think it's it's a love story which goes back to a a period in a a young man's life, a a young man's life and a young woman's life, Monique and, and Eric, where it's 
they're at their that stage of their lives when lo- a love of that nature is all um, consuming. I mean, that is the passages in the novel that make that I think clear that that is effectively. If you said, "What are you doing?" Well, they are what they are doing is being in love and everything within the world of that. So it's a, an all ab- obsessive, all absorbing um, state to be in, and you know. <laughs> People lucky enough to have had it know what it what, what what it feels like. It's also absolutely fraught with the danger of. I think in Monique's case, in the end, she just feels it's it's too much. It's not actually bearable because it, whatever they do, it it, it kind of exceeds their power or her power to to feel she has any um, control over it. There's absolutely no reason in reality for Katrine to feel that her love for Eric and Eric for her in, as it were, the present tense up to his death is less than that, but it's certainly different. And that's a matter, again, of phases of of, uh, of life. So I think of it you know, very much indeed as a, as a love story with, its, with, with the difficult, difficult and very different phases and kinds of uh, being in love, if you like. It, it, it raises so many different questions, but it got me thinking that... Within all of that love, the idea of letting go, and that is part of love, and whether letting go is, is, is part of the processes of grief. Yeah, I mean, I've always worked to the kind of um, equation, really, that the more love, the more grief. It seems to me you, you can't avoid that equation. And again, it's something you should rejoice in rather than regret. And, but it obviously it brings with it, if the equation is correct, and the more you love, the more you suffer. What you don't want to happen, what Eric doesn't want to happen to Katrine and what she herself doesn't want to happen to her, her is that you be so overwhelmed by grief that you can't actually continue a life of your own. And particularly in her case, when it, it seems to her as though she's combating a, what you might call a livelier life in the youth of her husband, one that she didn't know and can't have so she she really is up against it in asserting a life of her own which is not as i said i think earlier this is not a matter of of just sort of getting rid of somebody that, because grief is burdensome that you 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 can't get on so to speak it's it's a harder thing than that in many ways and it's a truer to life thing that is to say that the loss has got somehow to be incorporated into the life of of the living in a way which is well you know to put it mildly helpful rather than a hindrance to to being alive to staying alive and to wanting to stay alive it's a bloody cold truth though to think about grief or to understand grief as the measurement of love whether yeah. it's to do with a parent a brother a sister or a friend who has passed away right, but yeah. it did get me thinking and I thought about my own father as I um, read through the pages we all in our grief become somewhat obsessed with details on their past it's part yeah. of the natural process whether you go back to their childhood or try and find new pictures of your loved one but it's when that chips over is another matter isn't it yes and it's I think there is in, probably one could say in most people at a certain age, a will to carry on living. And particularly if you've, you know, if you've loved and it's been reciprocated, then you can, and she's striving to, I think, think of the person lost as as willing her to carry on living a, a life without him. I mean, he says as much he, before he, 
he dies, and that's when you, I think, you know, it's a kind of touching thing that I've experienced my, myself that you you want to leave nothing behind that that will leave a resentment. You want to leave nothing behind that you will you you feel at that point unforgiven for, and so forth. And and that, in a way, is a kind of making it as well as as good as possible, so that you can go on. I mean, I, I've known, I'm sure you have as well, deaths which have simply left a colossal burden of of not just grief but guilt or or there comes some realization about the person that you loved and who you thought loved you that is devastating and this kind of thing happens the whole time and one important thing in the life writer from the outset is that uh, Katrine does not stumble upon a complete secret it's not as though her husband has concealed anything from her she knows fully she knows about Monique she knows that there's a box full of letters there and she knows also that he laid no prohibition on her to 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 look at them and it's it's her choice to get into all that and as soon as she gets into it and she says it this is the only thing i want to do 